The Banker's Plumber, Lessons Learned. What's up in banking? What's changing? What has gone wrong? What is going right? I draw on over 30 years building stuff and fixing complicated problems for banks and trying to make sure that those same problems don't spring up again. This is a career that's taken me to London, New York, Zurich, Johannesburg, Moscow, Stockholm and various places in the Middle East. I have been fortunate enough to work with incredible leaders in banking, including Eddie Watts and Mike Serto at Goldman Sachs, which is where the expression lessons learned comes from. More from them in one of the actual podcasts. Lessons learned was a three-part model I helped to introduce at Goldman to examine things that had gone wrong in day-to-day operations. In this podcast series, You'll hear stories that tap into present issues and the past, lessons to learn and a few good tales, which I hope will brighten your day, whether you're in banking or not. Welcome to the very first edition of my podcast series, The Banker's Plumber, Lessons Learned. What's up in banking? What's changing? What's gone wrong? What is going right? The inspiration to actually do this series came observing the mess and meltdown at Wirecard. My own other inspiration is that down the years, of which there are now more than 30 in my professional life, I've had the privilege of working with some fantastic people in places far and wide and on some very interesting projects. It is entirely fitting that my first guest is Barry Lewis. Barry's a non-exec partner at the Challenger Consultancy Elixir. He's been in the city for many a year and has been something of a mentor to me over the years. Our paths first crossed at Salomon Brothers in 1987 in my first post-uni job. Barry, welcome, and thank you so much for supporting my nascent efforts. You've got a wealth of history. Tell us about a time you realised that things in banking can go quite wrong. Thanks, Aleph. Um, very happy to, to be your, your pilot in this little journey. Um, as you say, I've been working in the city for over 50 years now, so uh, lots and lots of examples where firms have slipped up over the years. Um, I guess... The, the, the numbers involved in these slip-ups became a lot bigger once the world of investment banking really took off after, after the UK Big Bang in 1986. Um, I started in UK stockbroking uh, and then we used to talk about thousands, um, which we all recognise as meaning something, thousands of pounds, barely ever spoke in one currency. But it big, quickly became yards, i.e. billions of dollars when the U, large US firms hit London. And that, that really transformed the way of thinking in the city. Um, so it started as a messenger um, and deli- literally delivering stock around to uh, around the market really taught me the basics of, of DVP, delivery versus payment. Um, but I moved into the world of investment banking when I joined CSFB, um, Credit Suisse First Boston, for those who are much younger, um, in, in early 1986. Um, I recall some of the early trades where we were booking interest rate swaps. We didn't have a swap system, so we, we booked in by the bond processing system um, with a purchase of fixed rate bond with a sale of a floating rate bond. I guess it achieved a financial objective, but was a recipe for the downstream reconciliation problems when we're, we're trying to tie in the, insert, the book, internal books and records to, to the outside world. Yeah, thanks. When we first met at Salomon's in 87, you were brought in to do something titled Ops or Operations Control. 
if I have it right, that was a turning point when you realized that beneath the glitzy exterior of huge trading floors, flashing screens and shouting into phones, there were some really fundamental problems inside banks, or at least the investment banking flavored ones. Yeah, um, amazing. You, you, you still look the same as we as you did back in 1987. I've, um, I've shrunk a bit. My hair's gone a bit blonder. Um, so I, I moved to, um, to Salomon Brothers um, in, back in 87 from CSFB to head up the ops control function. Um, this really opened my eyes to the importance of using proper systems and designing a control framework to ensure that there was integrity. Um, as, as you and I both know, Salomon was, was like the Wild West in those days. Um, it was really the, the cusp of the market and the very little of what was what we would now consider controlled. Um, the, the, the bank reconciliations where you tie the, your internal books to the outside world had thousands of open items. Um, there seemed to be you know, no control of the foul accounts, trades that didn't settle, um, and the ability to manage or forecast cash seemed beyond most people, which um, if, as a treasurer, trying to understand what was going on, he had, he had no chance at all. Um, I remember a particular time when I was asked to go to, to, to Frankfurt to oversee the operation, um, where Salomon was one of the major players in the, in the large, at that time, uh, German Bund market. Um, the, the majority of trades were back to were booked back to back with Salomon Brothers International in London, and so they transferred the risk back from the local market maker into the into the hub. Um, but no one thought about linking the processes, so they would have a trade booked in Frankfurt. They wouldn't have the same mirror trade in London, um, and combined with all the cash rec issues in London, it led to a complete disaster um, with hundreds of of millions, perhaps billions, of Deutschmarks, of intercompany trades failing, um, foul trades generally, and cash breaks or differences at any one time. Um, I've got no idea, Harry, how, how we, we survived, how the firm survived, particularly in, a, in the early days of repo markets as well, where you do a trade and then there's a, there's a, a repo to finance and trade on the back end. Overall, tough but fun times when, uh, I guess, an amazing group of people and I include you in that, uh, Olaf, under the leadership of uh, as one of my, my heroes, Lynn Jukes, um, worked against the odds to bring the business back under control, to create an operating architecture that lasted for um, the next 20 years or so after Salomon, Salomon Brothers was purchased by City. After, after Salomon, I moved to, to BZW, uh, BZW um, Barclays to Zootwed, uh, as the global head of ops, um, together with Lynn Jukes. Very, very different working environment from Salomon Brothers. Um, BZW did understand how the market worked um, from their, their UK broker jobber pedigree. Um, but the, the businesses around the rest of the world had the same control challenges. I was asked to, as part of my global role, to um, look at what was going on in Hong Kong. Um, I found exactly the same, basic issues existing, cash breaks, foul breaks, um, and it was the whole general ledger account ownership where tying back the books and record numbers by someone taking accountability, um, which is non-existent. And people, and we, never, we, did, we never really did find out who, had dumped items they didn't recognize into a series of suspense accounts. So the, some of the reconciliations looked clean, but actually, 
the problems were hidden elsewhere. Significant issues. Um, continuing my career, the, the, the equity business within BZW was sold to CSFB, back to CSFB in 97. And so I moved back to, be, to, to CSFB to become head of um, ops, risk and control. Um, I guess coming into another new institution, the first thing I said was, okay, let me see what's going on. And uh, there was nothing in terms of any form of MI that provided management with a tool to, to give them clarity on what was going on in the day-to-day -day process. Um, so, so relatively easily, create some basic reporting MI. I was able to, to gain the evidence that they face similar challenges, here we go again, with fouls, cash rates, balance sheet controls. Um, my career at, 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 uh, at CSFB became CS, I moved forward. Um, I moved to Asia, I came back, um, I guess rolled forward to 2008 when the global financial crisis was in full swing um, and the subject of liquidity came up. What is liquidity in this context? It's making sure you've got the right cash balance in the right place to fulfill our settlement obligations. Uh, in the past, we could always depend on our clearing banks to, to provide credit if and when we were short on a particular value date. And we, we, these trades are worth billions of, of every single currency every day moving to and fro. But unfortunately, in the post-Lehman world, no one trusted anybody. And so it really did become, a, for a time, a dog-eat-dog -dog world where uh, institutions, and I won't name them, I don't think, on this, uh, on this podcast, uh, felt it appropriate to pull settlement instructions if there was a sniff of an issue with the counterparty. And at that time, the world was full of rumours that Goldman's was going to go under, Morgan Stanley was going to go under, you know, who was the next bank to go under? Challenging, challenging times. Thanks. As we look around today, we've both of us uh, closer to the end of our working lives than the beginning. I think we've both had occasion to have a wry smile about all the buzzwords and the new tech, none more so than when we talked on the phone about Wirecard a couple of weeks back. Uh, for all the new tech, the basics remain so important. As the French might say, plus sa chance, plus c'est la même chose. Things might change, but it's the same thing. Your closing thoughts on the basics and the things we need to pay attention to, whether we have red tech, green tech, or blue tech? Yeah, I think I'm probably closer to the end of my working life than you are, <laughs> but um, I guess from my, from my 50 years in uh, working in operations, there's, uh, there's three... Uh, key lessons. Um, you can't manage what you can't measure. Um, very, very fundamental. So you need to always develop and embed some form of key risk indicators into, into every process. You have to evidence that you're in control. Uh, and the regulators are constantly now talking about you know, where is the evidence when you made that decision. So a great example, you know, a figure in a spreadsheet does not support a balance in the ledger. You know, always demand to see external proof that substantiates the balance. And in my in my history, I've had so many times when I've said, "Show me how this balance is made up," and someone brings another Excel spreadsheet and says, "Look at that cell now." That's not the answer. And then ultimately, and you and I love this one: cash is king. Um, having the correct money in the correct bank account is the is the end goal to everything. The underlying trades are the drivers of settlement, but the outcome is cash, and it's cash that it's cash that drives everything. It's, it's the 
what your shareholders are expected to see is what your regulators are expected to see. Yeah. Many thanks. It's been a privilege both to have you as my first guest on this series and as a mentor over the years. So much has changed. The numbers have got bigger. The business is more global and still we come back to good discipline. To wrap up in keeping with the title of the podcast, Lessons Learned. Measure. If you can't measure it, it can't get managed. Evidence is what gives you control. And lastly, Barry's third point, that cash is king, uh, at least in banks and in places called Wirecard, which will be the subject of a future podcast. With all the fintech movement, I think there's a grey hair bonus for us old dogs to teach the new dogs the old tricks. You've been listening to the first in the series, The Banker's Plumber, Lessons Learned. Mm-hmm.